29. I don't like rules, part 4. The solution is so simple, and yet it seems like a mountain that cannot be crossed. The solution is so basic that it almost seems absurd, and yet it is the solution. The only answer, it's what St. Therese knew so well, as did St. Matthew. St. Matthew's Gospel says, Unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. To turn. To turn? Unless you turn, it reads. The word turn shattered my assumptions. I often would see a crazy Christian on the street corner yelling, Repent! And I thought, What a nutcase! The word repent has so many strange connotations for me, uh, basically because most people who used it seemed A, insane, and B, to mismatch the message of Jesus as I understood it. But to turn, this sounded different. To turn my life, to turn my mind, to turn, wait, what does that mean? To turn means to reorient the direction I'm facing. That made more sense. Repent sounded like fear-based correction. Repent and avoid the fires of hell. Repent for the end is near. I can hear that old-time Jonathan Edwards in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God delivering hellfire and brimstone to a country church in the year 1741. You have to love a good Calvinist sermon for the fire it can light under people. But that never motivated me. You'd think it would. Fire hurts. The pain of burning is worse than anything I've experienced. But that message wasn't really good news to me. That sermon could never cause me to turn. I could not even hear that message. In fact, it drove me away. And so it was the opposite of persuasive. It was repulsive. I don't know that you can use that method anymore to talk to people about Jesus. I guess you probably can for some people. And hellfire sermons are powerful to some. And I've, I've been at a few in my life. But that's not the honey that draws this fly into the church door. No, that message was vinegar. Good behavior driven solely by fear seemed an absurd path to salvation. And once again... It seems to make us more like dogs than humans who have intellect and free will. It almost seemed like a kind of coercion. Comedians like George Carlin and the New Atheist writers latch onto this notion of you will burn in hell for eternity and your flesh will boil and melt and you will scream forever. But remember, dear child, that God loves you. Modernity mocks this idea and just as God has been reduced to an optional Santa Claus, the devil has also been reduced to a Halloween costume or horned clown with a pitchfork to the detriment of millions of people's faith. By luck, I am just dumb enough to have hit bottom without having the terror of a fiery hell. By luck, I found hell. And only then did I return to the Gospels, but this time with proper guidance and a study Bible. Then I found something deeper. I found something deeper than that old fear-based motivation of avoiding hell. 
To become fully awake, I was struck on the head repeatedly, as I had been dense to the meaning of repent for most of my life. Repent means to turn back to God, to turn away from sin. Well, how does someone turn back to God? Well, you just do. You turn your thoughts, your heart, and your mind. Yeah, okay, I get it. It's difficult to explain. It's, it's almost, you can't really hear it unless you are ready. You can't turn until you are ready. You can try anytime you like, though. The old saying of you can lead a horse to water but can't make him drink fits really well here. You cannot turn until you're ready and listening. And turning does not work until your mind becomes open. Even therapy is all about being open-minded. You hear this all the time, but there's different kinds of openness. And turning sounds so easy from people that have turned already or for those who have never turned away. But for those who have turned and are not ready, they will feel like their spine and neck are fused together. Ideally, we could just all have Jesus stick his fingers in our ears and say, be opened like he did to the deaf mute dude in Decapolis. Barring that miracle, we can try to be open by effort, by asking God for willingness to be willing. I have come to believe that this openness is the single and only question on the entrance exam to getting accepted into Christianity 101 and starting on a great journey of faith. There's the gospel story about the prostitute who was washing Jesus' feet while he was at a dinner party with the Pharisees. This surely created a scene by her behavior and her very presence in the room. I suspect prostitutes and Pharisees didn't ordinarily just hang out, at least not, you know, in their house publicly. If anything, it would have been private and probably illegal, if you know what I'm saying. The picture of this dinner party where a prostitute is on the floor washing one of the guest's feet is quite honestly bizarre. It's hard to imagine having a dinner party where there happens to be someone who wasn't invited who was there washing someone else's feet and crying on their feet. But this, the strangeness of the story aside, there's a word in the story that jarred me. As so often, one single word in the gospel stories can do to people. Someone once told me, or I heard it somewhere, that books don't change people, paragraphs do. In my case, single words have changed me. After Jesus briefly discusses the woman with his host, who is a Pharisee, Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the two debtors. One debtor owes 500 days of wages and one debtor only owes 50 days of wages. The creditor, seeing that neither debtor can pay it back, forgives their debts. They don't have to pay anything back. Jesus says, which of the debtors will love him more. And the host of the dinner party, the Pharisee, says in reply, the one, I suppose, whose larger debt was forgiven. And Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. Then a powerful word suddenly occurs in the next sentence, a life-changing word. Jesus says to the Pharisee, so I tell you, 
Her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. So when he's saying this, he's talking about the woman who's washing his feet. So I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. In this sentence, the behavior of the woman is explained. And there's a key word in the middle of the sentence. Hence. This is the turning point, the swivel on which the change is made. The turn happens on that hence. She loves Jesus because she has been forgiven. She does not love him in order to obtain forgiveness. She is forgiven first. She realizes this forgiveness. Then she loves him. Forgiveness comes first, then the love. In fact, I'm not sure how it can be any other way, but I just never really realized it or thought about it. The power of these little realizations repeatedly unlocked the doors and windows to refresh my belief. I go from holding my breath to taping, taking a deep inhalation of amazement. And as usual, Bishop Robert Barron illuminates these things better than I can. Here's a quote from the Word on Fire Bible about this story. It is important to note that Jesus does not, strictly speaking, forgive her sins. Rather, he notices that she has been forgiven. And the evidence for it is her self-forgetting love. She loves so passionately and so courageously, precisely because she has been so graciously and abundantly forgiven. It is decidedly not the case, Jesus implies, that love precedes divine forgiveness as a sort of prerequisite. On the contrary, forgiveness precedes, precedes love as the condition for its possibility. It is not the case that one's moral life must be upright in order to win divine favor. Rather, the sheer gift of God's favor tends to produce an upright moral life, a life of love. So for more on this dinner party, um, go out and purchase the Word on Fire Bible, which is the best $30 I have ever spent. And I am not associated with Word on Fire, even though I always mention that Bible. Realizing that forgiveness is real and present for us, for all of us, results in the unfusing of the neck and spine, which allows us to turn, which then afterwards results in the joy. With this combination, we can then annoy the world by running around telling everyone about the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the forgiveness of sins. That hence, in the middle of that sentence, that is the good news. You are flawed, yet forgiven. Hence, happiness. Simple words. Forgiveness, hence, joy. That is the sum of it all right there in three words. Notice the sentence is not fear, hence, forgiveness. No, it's not fear, hence, joy. No, it must be forgiveness, hence, joy. This turning, however, does not happen without the right order of events. Maybe the sinful woman and I are just the fortunate ones, as we both owed 500 days of wages that we could never pay back, and somehow stumbling along in the dark, we suddenly understood that forgiveness is possible. Hence, great love was found. 
This is the same as the parable of the man who finds the treasure in the field and sell all, sells all he owns to buy the field. This is from Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field which a person finds and hides again and out of joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The treasure in the field is forgiveness. Then, out of joy, he sells all that he has. Notice the placement of that qualifying phrase, out of joy. The treasure is forgiveness. Hence, in his joy, he sells everything for it. He trips over this treasure called forgiveness. And only then is he joyful. He's not joyful and then trips over the treasure of forgiveness. The woman washing Jesus' feet at the Pharisee's dinner party has that joy. Why does she have it? Well, she's found the treasure. Well, what is the treasure? It's forgiveness. She knows forgiveness is possible. Hence, hence, hence she is joyful. Forgiveness, hence the turn. Forgiveness, hence joy. Why didn't anyone tell me about this? How did I miss this? To turn means to have an interior conversion, to be open. To turn does not mean throwing myself on the ground in fear. And love is a far stronger pull than fear. Observe a child that gets screamed at for doing anything incorrectly versus a child that is taught and coached to do things correctly. Which approach do you think a child will respond to better in the long run? Screaming and fear or teaching and love? Just as a better understanding on how I should be reading the Bible awakened me, so did this idea of turning back to God. And suddenly, the lunatic shouting on the street corner with his cardboard sign made sense because I wanted to go out and correct his sign. I wanted to stop my car, get out, and ask him, Hey, buddy, can I change the wording on your sign? I just need to change the word repent to say turn. Repent means to turn, but what motivation is there to turn? Oh, right, forgiveness. Yes, forgiveness, the treasure, the pearl, the whole reason for the incarnated God of Christianity in the person of Jesus. Yeah, redemption, wow, what a concept. Oh, right, that small detail of dying for our sins, of taking our sins upon himself, of entering into our suffering and not flinching, so that he could defeat death and thereby set us free. Right. Just that, that minor detail. I know the answer to some of life's great questions. The hardest questions. When I look at the story of Peter walking on the water, I can see it all there. Why did Peter sink? Because he took his eyes off God. Well, what does Peter do? He cries out to Jesus for help. Why did Peter fail? Because he's a flawed human being. Why does Peter cry out? Because he has faith. And why does Jesus save him? Because Peter is forgiven. Hence, Peter is back in the boat with the treasure of all treasures, the forgiveness of Jesus. And once forgiven, hence, Peter is later witnessing to all, sampling psalms like a rap artist preaching, you will fill me with joy in your presence in the Acts of the Apostles. We can only enter this game of belief and faith if we turn back to God like children. 
And sometimes it takes a near drowning to make that turn possible, to cry out, to reach for the hand of God. Fairly often people just trip over the treasure like the man in the parable walking in the field, which is just as good as falling on your face. Surely it can happen by effort, but more often we seem to find it by accident or by bad choices. Faith certainly does not come by knowledge. It certainly does not come to he or she who has the most money. Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, they will get nothing for their knowledge or their wealth, and not an ounce of faith comes from those things. The poor have more potential than wealthy people. Likewise, doctors and professors get no more ability to communicate and pray to God than someone in prison or someone in poverty or someone with no education. The rich and the educated may even receive less ability for faith, often because their own success, deserved or not, makes them blind and deaf instead of open. Rather, it is the person that comes back like a child, that turns back, who will find the hints about the next world. He who orients himself toward God can regain the innocence that was lost. Turning back like a child creates understanding, and no, it will not restore all that was lost, and you won't be suddenly given all you pray for, and you're you're given, but you're given back more than that. Jesus never said suffering will go away. God is not a winning lottery ticket. We're, we were given Jesus and His example. He did not watch our suffering from afar, but He entered into the suffering with us. And who suffered? Well, Jesus certainly suffered. His mother suffered. His apostles suffered. They suffered more than any of us, and yet they had joy. That's the gift. That's what we are supposed to imitate. Consider how crazy this line from Acts of the Apostles sounds. Paul is in prison. He's in chains with his fellow believer, Silas. And they've been beaten and bound hand and foot. And what is Paul and his buddy doing? Here's what they're doing. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God as the prisoners listened. They're singing songs like they were at a nightclub. This is the baffling joy that drives non-Christians crazy.